My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts. The Box of Oddities is now a CastBox original. CastBox is the fastest growing, highest rated podcast app on both iOS and Android, where you can find all your favorite podcasts. You can listen to The Box of Oddities wherever you access your podcasts. But we hope you give CastBox a try. The curator is greatly pleased with CastBox. We think it's the best. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. Oh, hey. Hey. I didn't see you there. What are we doing? <laughs> it's the weekend, and, and we usually don't we don't drop an episode on the weekend. What's going on? Not generally, no. This no. is a very special blossom. <laughs> Except... Neither one of us are having our period for the first time. <laughs> um, it's great to have you here, you freak. Uh, here's the thing. it's This is not going to be a typical Box of Oddities podcast. No, this is what we're calling a bonus episode. Right. So it's, it's totally different, but I, I hope you enjoy it. I had the opportunity, you had to work, but I had the opportunity to interview a guy named James Taylor. No, not the fire and rain guy. Uh, This James Taylor has been called the world's foremost authority on the sideshow slash freak show. He publishes a periodical called Shocked Shocked and and Amazed. And uh, he's got a book called Shocked and Amazed, On and Off the Midway. Uh, He's got a new book coming out, and he has been featured on the History Channel. They did a uh, documentary called Shocked and Amazed based on his publications. Right. And there should be a documentary also called Oh My Gosh, Can You Believe It? based on his facial hair. Yeah, he has amazing mutton chops. It's so good. So I interviewed him at a tattoo shop in Bangor, Maine. Right. My favorite tattoo shop, Three Graces, um, featuring... The amazing Autumn Tierney, who I love dearly. And we both got matching tattoos there that we'll post pretty soon. So we were connected to uh, to, to James through Baron Von Geiger, who is a uh, semi-retired sideshow performer. This guy is amazing. He, uh, he suspends himself uh, on hooks by his flesh. Mm-hmm. And pulls things by his eyes. Yeah. He actually, <laughs> he holds the world record for lifting things with his earlobes. 
And we're going to have him uh, on a bonus episode very shortly. So I'm terribly sorry that I wasn't able to be a part of this interview. I'm actually really excited to hear it. So the first thing I asked him was, how do you feel about being referred to as the world's foremost authority on freak shows? I tell everybody that um, I just play that guy on TV. Um, uh, yeah, I, the, the people who work the business know a lot more about the business than I do. I just, I've been a huge fan of the business for a lot of years. Uh, I got to be really friendly with a lot of people who were from the golden age of carnivals and sideshows back between the world wars. And they're all gone now. It was essentially an exercise in watching old show folk die when I started Shocked and Amazed, um, my sideshow publication uh, back in the uh, early, early 90s. But um, yeah, they're all pretty much gone now. But it's a whole new wave. It's, it's new sideshow out there now. It's kind of frightening. I can't keep up with it. What, uh, what is the difference between a sideshow and a freak show? Um, spelling? No. Um, <laughs> geez. I, well... Geez, what's the best way to put this? A uh, sideshow is a very big tent, um, or big top, I should suppose I should say, because after all, it's not—they're not tents. Tents are what Boy Scouts stay in. Tops are what outdoor performers work in, with sidewalls around the top. Uh, but freak show and sideshow, for common man sort of parlance, are indistinguishable. But in fact, pretty much any show on a carnival is a sideshow. Uh, because they're all on the sides. They're, you know, you, of old anyway, you'd go in through the main gate, you go in through the Marquet, pass through that, and at the back end of this big horseshoe shape would be all the shows. And it would be girl shows and wax museums under canvas and monkey speedways. I mean, you name it, it was in that showbiz, that outdoor showbiz of a day. And then the two arms of the horseshoe that would come around toward the front the front door, if you will, uh, that would be where all the joints were, all the food concessions and the games. Um, not a game of chance, not the way they play it. Um, well, as the carnival people put it, they say, oh, yeah, he's going up against the games. <laughs> They're for amusement purposes only, uh, really, because it's not gambling. It's not. Everybody knows he's going to win. But, uh, but anyway. You mentioned the golden age. You said that was between the world wars. Yeah. What did that look like? Well, I mean, it's an era, now, now radio's in full flower between the world wars, but pretty much every other form of entertainment for mom, dad, the kids, and, you know, grandma and grandpa, their entertainment comes to town outside that radio, their entertainment comes to town once or twice a year. And it's either the state fair that has a carnival attendant to it or the county fair or some other fair, some other outdoor attraction that the carnival can glom its way onto. So what that would have been like in that era would have been a bazillion and one shows in the carnival that showed up one time a year. And you'd have gone and, you know, dad and grandpa would have probably gone to see the girl shows and mom and grandma and the kids are going off to watch like the pig races and the monkey speedway and little monkeys in motor cars riding around competing to see who wins. Yeah, okay, who wins? It's all it works. It's carnival. I mean, come on, everybody knows the way it turns out. What would it have been like for a performer during the golden age? Um, we've all romanticized what all of that outdoor business was like, you know, in the day back in, you know, back between say the world wars or before or since 
but rock bottom, it's down and dirty, work your butt off outside, you're sweating like a pig most of the season because it's in warm weather, and then you reach the end of the season and you're freezing your butt off because it's October, early November as you're working your way south, and then come February, you're back out at it again if you're, you know, if you're already based in the south, the Tampa Fair, the Florida State Fairs in, in, uh, in February. And, but a lot of those, a lot of these performers didn't start until May. In the old days, if you were a freak performer, you got a lot of money. Certainly compared to everybody else who was going through the Great Depression, uh, the way the money worked was uh, the owner of the show generally ended up getting stiffed if the show didn't make any damn money. The manager of the show did okay; they they were okay money, but the big money got paid to the born freak which everybody thinks, oh, so abusive. They, they got, half the time, they own the show. So, you know, the idea that they're getting abused, it's, well, it's, it's showbiz, everybody gets abused. It's, it's, it's a business of abuse. So there is that, you know, ask Harvey Weinstein. Um, but, but separate from that, um, and after the, the Born Freak, the highest paid talent in that show was the talker on the front of, the, on the front of that show. Because if they couldn't talk you in, nobody made any money yeah oh yeah oh god that 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 valley was it and i I was talking to an old show guy this was years ago and he says you know the the guy you missed and he rattled the old guy's name off he'd been dead for decades but he says he was a relief talker and in the old days what they would do is there would be a talker who literally would go show to show and would know how to pitch for every one of those shows, because the pitches are all different. I mean, you don't open a 10 in one, uh, a standard sideshow, freak show, 10 acts on, in one, you know, in one show. You don't open a 10 in one like you open a motor drone where it's, you know, you know, riders, you know, you know, racing around a 14 foot high wall, as small as your living room, you know, it's kind of mess. That was a different pitch. Girl shows were a different pitch. Uh, individual attractions, singalos, as they used to call them, all those like little singalo, uh, Lord's Last Supper shows. I mean, all those shows had different pitches. So the relief talker was the master of all those pitches and all those openings, as they used to call them. And literally, that guy would go around relieving other talkers from the fronts of those shows before all the amplification and before all the tape recorded, you know, ballys and all the rest of that hoo-ha. And he'd relieve everybody so he could give you a break. Because other than that, you're standing out there with that megaphone or just leather longing it out, out to the crowd. Uh, but yeah, it, I mean, it was, a, it, was a, it was a loud and raucous sort of environment, but not the way it is now. I mean, there wasn't that massive blaring of music over everything because it was live as often as not. You'd hear the generators working the light plants as, as evening wore on. So it's all that noise. And you'd go in there and you'd see performers who might have recently appeared in Todd Browning's Freaks and, you know, out of Hollywood. So, you know, you could see almost anything, but it was it was pretty amazing stuff as the legends would have it, as reputations of old would have it. What was the um, the premiere show in those days? What was considered to be the best show to play? Uh, <laughs> well, there's... <clears throat> There's, there's what's said, and then there's what shows up on your hip when you're walking away at the end of the season, money-wise. Um, I mean, everybody wanted to play Ringling Brothers, and everybody wanted to be featured in Ripley's, but neither one of those things necessarily made you money. I mean, Ringling Brothers paid okay, but 
by the same token, they weren't any easier a lot to work than anybody else's. I mean, they, there were there were ragbag shows. There were shows that would beat you up, and you'd be lucky if when you finished the season, you even got paid because nobody was making any money. I mean, there, there were showmen who literally absconded with the dough, but they usually didn't last too long. Uh, there were a number of them. Um, you know, names unmentioned, Ray Marsh Bryden. Um, yeah, Ray, yeah, Bryden had a horrifying reputation um, for, for not paying his help and skipping on money and everything. But he never made a, a, a million bucks either. I mean, he was always uh, on, the, on the outskirts of, of destitution running these, these damn shows. Uh, yet you played spots and you made enormous money. You played other spots, and they were blankaroos. You made squat, or you got rained out, or you got blown down. It, you know, it's the outdoor business. It's, it's, it's worse than being a farmer. You can pretty much tell about halfway through the season whether you're going to be bankrupt come November, but as a showman on the midway, you might not know the last two or three spots. You might think, oh, I'm rolling in it now, and then something come at you sideways in that last couple spots, and you're, you're cooked. You get busted, you know, so heat rolls in on you, the law rolls in, you get kicked off a lot. I mean, all kinds of crazy things could go on. But yeah, it, pretty much any show that by reputation paid you at the end of the season, and it was always a business of being good by your word. So it wasn't like you signed a contract. I mean, if the handshake didn't do it, then you didn't work with the guy the next season, yeah. um, you know, if you could get away from him. Because uh, sometimes, sometimes you just you know. But if you were a born freak, boy, you always had work. You mentioned a, a moment ago the uh, the popular myth or the folklore surrounding a natural born freak, the tragic lives they lived in by normals like us. You know, oh, it's horrible. Oh, it must be so horrible to be born without legs. Yeah, until you're sort of like retiring at the age of forty because you made so much money on those between the wars midways. You could get really beat up out there. But if you played your cards right and you were a decent showman and you never stopped working it, you could do okay. We recently did an episode on the, uh, the Hilton sisters. Oh, yeah. And, of course, that ended very sadly for them. Well, the, the problem that the Hilton sisters had, and, and it was the problem with a lot of the born freaks, um, usually, you know, how do, we want, how do we want to approach this? Uh, usually, you got into the business at a very early age, not because you sort of like, I don't know, crawled up the midway in your diapers and asked for work. Usually your parents as much as sold you to the carnival. Um, you know, lots of times those parents would be like, we travel with them. That's part of the deal. You don't pay for us to be there with them. We'll work for you. We'll, we'll do whatever you want around the show, but we ain't away from the kid. Other ones rented the children to the shows. Uh, other ones got their kids into the business from the time they were real little because you're talking the Great Depression. And... A lot of times, that little kid who was born without legs or without arms but could do all these other things, despite that, um, normals would pay a fortune to look at that, to watch that, to watch him perform. And a lot of times, those kids were, were supporting the whole family. Sometimes the families did with it, did fairly well with it. A lot of times, it was like any other Hollywood family that gets their kids into the business. It doesn't often end like you'd want it to. The Hilton sisters, for example, their mother have, having them born out of wedlock was problem one. Problem two is she's like a barmaid in Brighton, in Great Britain, and she has absolutely no desire to care for those kids, even in the face of the money she could have made off of exhibition. 
So who picked up on them was old lady Hilton. And they were virtually enslaved until they were well beyond maturity. I mean, they were like 20, 20, 21 by the time they finally managed to get away from their, their manager at that point in time. And I had heard that, that they didn't even realize that they were big stars. Yeah, they, they got screwed out of the money. I mean, it wasn't an era like, like say, now, where you can get a guy like Macaulay Culkin. Well, Macaulay Culkin knew, like, five minutes after the movie you know, premiered, he, was, he and the family were worth a million bucks. It was an era when, unless what you got presented to you was newspapers with you on the front page headlined over the President of the United States on page three, unless you saw that, it would be possible for you to not have quite a clue. But given the way they were raised, even while they were doing those vaudeville gigs and everything else, because they weren't carnival attractions initially, um, they were vaudeville and they were, well, eventually they ended up working burlesque amazingly, which there's evidence of, but it's amazingly skimpy. I really don't even want to imagine what the Hiltons were doing when they worked burlesque, because by the time they worked burlesque, they were not in their 20s. I mean, they were up there. They were, they, they were struggling to make any kind of money they could, but they made some bad investments. They squandered money like nobody's business because they, they weren't raised to handle it. So when they, when they made $50,000 in some week, some spot, they thought they were like King Midas. This was like, well, you're, what's, what's the Hollywood line? What have you done for me lately? You know? Uh, and unless you're really rolling in, you know, unless it's bankrolling all the way for you, you're not, you're not guaranteed anything beyond your last gig. That's what it is. And finally they fetched up with one of the worst films ever made, which is Chained for Life. Oh my God, what a terrible film. And, uh, I mean, delightfully horrible. It's always in the top five worst films ever made. And, um, they fetched up with a kind of a, a gee, we're going to tour this thing. And they had no driver's license, had no car, couldn't, everything was done by train. So, of course, when they fetch up in the 50s with this horrible movie, which they basically had the fund to complete it, I mean, it, its final production was out of their pocket. Well, now they're fetching up with trying to tour this movie and tour with it. Well, they're in like their 50s, 60s, and you got this film that's horrible. And you, it's playing drive-ins, and they're talking to their manager about, well, can we get a train to the next spot? Well, yeah, and get dumped 40 miles away from the spot. And then you got, it was all this mess. And finally, their road manager apparently just, he split. He was like, I'm dying. This, this whole, this thing is a joke. I got to get out of here. And uh, the guy who was, was kind of instrumental in um, helping push them forward uh, it was William Morris. I mean, or um, yeah, uh, the magic, you know, the magic catalog and all the rest of it. You know, Morris was the guy out of the Carolinas who had kind of gotten them, looked at him and was like, well, gee, I'll try to set you up on a tour. I, I don't know, but he wasn't the road manager. So now they fetch up and they're back with him. And he had a big buddy who was um, the owner of a small chain of grocery stores. And he's like, well, I'll, I'll give him, I'll give him work. And literally, they finished their lives as checkout and bagger or dual baggers in a, in a little grocery store in the Carolinas. And um, uh, there was a documentary made just recently, a Leslie Zemeckis uh, a production. And um, she asked me during, during that, probably 
a question that I shouldn't have been surprised by, but I was, which she said, well, how do you think they took those last days when they were doing that? And I, it's one of those questions nobody ever really asks, you know. They, and, and my line was, I think it was probably the happiest they ever were in their lives because the, the community loved them. Everybody, like, doted on them. I mean, you know, they worked in a grocery store bagging groceries, but still everybody was just, they were so proud that they were, they were living in the town. Yeah, I, I think they finally in that town in those last days completely accidentally found the family that they'd never really had. Not a, not a good family anyway. One of the things that has always drawn me to this is um, the fact that it's not just the act. It's, it's, it's so much the backstory. It's so much the way it's sold. Oh, it's, which is made up. Growing up, I was a huge fan of comedian and performance artist Andy Kaufman. Oh, yeah. And he really was a genius at blurring the line between reality and fiction. Mm -hmm. Did you recognize that his roots were in that sort of an entertainment uh, form when, when you saw him performing? I would say the new business traces its roots to him a lot more clearly than he traced it to them. I think Kaufman inspired an unbelievable amount uh, that's in the showbiz now. Um, things that he did that before he was doing them, you couldn't do comedically or any other way, not with any ease and get away with it. And he just sort of broke all the molds. I know that he went to Hubert's, which was arguably the last dime museum in the United States when you know, it was up there on 42nd and Broadway in that area. And, um, I mean, he just loved that stuff. But so did Deanne Arbus. I mean, her earliest photos are all out of Hubert's. Uh, and she was fascinated with the freaks. And some of her most famous photography is, is of people of physical difference. Um, you know, all of, all of whom she said they were born royalty because they were born with whatever other whatever tragedy you could have humanly. They were born with it physically. And they had to deal with a world that wasn't designed around them. But yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd say the new business, the new business in some ways has less to do outside of the raw stunts, has less to do with the old business because it was all outdoor and more to do with what Andy Kaufman kind of sprang from, which was in some ways his own damn head. Uh, you know, and a lot of that kind of crazy, that crazy mix of media sort of all smashed together that we're living you know, ass deep in right now. I mean, geez, it's like, you know, the blurred lines between all the media. I mean, and, I, I, I yeah. wanted to ask you about yeah. that. Um, is social media today the modern sideshow? Let me quote Jeannie Tamaney, the world's only living half girl, who, of course, because she's the world's only living half girl, she's been dead since the year 2000. Um, uh, when Jerry Springer, <laughs> on this damn shoot, I was, I was talking with some people the other day, and we're on the Jerry Springer shoot uh, that I that I had helped set up, and Jerry's it, it's in between the you know the, the shoots with with her, um, they're not rolling, and he's sitting there on the he's sitting there on the front porch of like cabin two down there at Giants Camp in Gibsonton, Florida, you know, Freak Show USA, you know, Sideshow USA down there, Showtown, and um, he says, well, he says, you know, he says a lot of people have said that sort of like the talk shows, you know, of which Jerry is one of the inventors, for God's sake, uh, certainly the way they are now. 
And um, he says, you know, a lot of people say that the, the sideshows, that the, the, the sideshows have mutated and, and the talk shows are kind of like today's sideshows. And Jeannie looks at him with that little smile and she goes, oh, no, I wouldn't say that at all. When we worked sideshows, sideshows were good. <laughs> and I was like, I, what do you, and, and Jerry was like, okay, <laughs> not a question we're going to ask on camera then. No, we're not going to do that one. Uh, but I... Yeah, I mean, sideshow now takes so much of its so much of its playbook is driven by stand-up comedy, and club work and band work. You know how it travels, how it moves, how it has to kind of move for better or for worse. I mean, in a lot of ways, what's really funny from everything I've I've, I've read about the old days of vaudeville, it feels more like a weird dystopian old days of vaudeville where you know everybody's kind of this independent act there's some grooves but you know the, and and you know you're kind of everything's shifting around and you you get picked up for this gig but you're not with your regular bunch and you, it's just it's it's kind of this show mess and that's not necessarily a bad thing it, it's kind of rough when it comes time for the money because the club owners are a mix between they ain't got a clue so they don't know what to pay you so they're either going to be insulted or shocked or something when you hit them with your price tag or they're out to screw you around you know so when it comes time to pay up they're like oh i know we promised you like 750 but you know all we got is like six and the door was real bad and all this and that's when you got to go out and get the bat out of the trunk and say you know i really it's been a while since i sort of got arrested but i think for 150 bucks it might actually be worth it um you know i mean it, it's 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 a very odd business nowadays I, you know my my prediction which may or may not come true i i mean i predicted that Sideshow was going to be the metaphor for the 21st century, and boy, am I frightened that I was right. Yeah. But um, but my prediction, given how big burlesque is still kind of rolling around somewhat, and Sideshow, which was playing kind of sloppy seconds to it, but now is sort of rolling in, I anticipate that what's going to start to happen is you're going to see a lot more talent look at the business and say, damn it, this is a business and this is ridiculous. It's great to want to be on stage, but you know what my forte is? It's this end of the business or this end or this end or this end. I, I know people right now, I, let's say I wouldn't go out of my way to watch the act um, if it was, I don't know, across the street. But <laughs> they're, they're amazing at promoting themselves and at promoting shows. Well, damn it, they need to get off the goddamn stage and start promoting talent that's any good. They have to recognize in themselves, you know, you know, I'm not the box of chocolates that my mother thinks I am. You know, I, it's, there's, there's got, and besides, working the other end of the business, if you can work it well enough and there's enough business that you can represent, well, the idea behind representing talent is you make your money off of the talent because the talent's making enough that they can afford to pay you and see that it's worth them having you in their corner. And I think that probably what's going to start to happen is you're going to start to see a drop back in the lesser talent and you're going to start to see venues expecting better because they've once in a while seen better. And you're going to start to see a bit more organization. You're going to start, start to see a bit more people representing and carrying different ends for different people care of, you know, care of their own acts. 
And then you're going to start to see all the rest of the regimentation roll in, which ultimately kills the business. But, hey, what the hell? You know, it's, it's that kind of biz. Yeah. No, I mean, um, well, vaudeville imploded for a lot of reasons, but not the worst of it was is that it fought a lot of the other showbiz forms tooth and nail. They all, they all have. Vaudeville fought, oh, God. Vaudeville fought radio for years. Oh, they're, in the early days of radio, Keith Albee Circuit Boy, if they found out you had appeared on radio, you were done. You weren't getting on a VOD stage at all after that because you'd given it away. Really? Yeah. You know, it was like it was like the 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 rivalry between the legitimate stage, which had only been legitimate for like 45 stinking years at this point, right? Yeah. And Hollywood. You know, it was like, oh, you left the legitimate stage in New York and went to Hollywood. No, you were done. You were never getting back on Broadway. No, they weren't talking to you again. It's kind of like podcasting is uh, in terms of uh, uh, terrestrial radio. I would say podcasting is smarter uh, to the extent that, well, it might not be a lot of dough in it, but by the same token, you're your own man, you're your own, you know, you're your own thing. It's like right now I'm facing what a lot of the publishers and it's killing newspapers. It's, it's all the online publish on demand. Yeah. I couldn't afford to keep publishing shocked and amazed. I mean, I, I got my reputation in the business care of the journal care shocked and amazed. And, uh, Oh, uh, the new collector's edition is, uh, due out in another few weeks, by the way, I should plug that. Yes. Um, where can they find it? Geez, best place to, to do it is, um, oh, I don't know, going to my website, going to shockedandamazed.com. Um, all one word, all lowercase, no ampersand. I, that's the best place. It'll, it'll be available on Amazon and everything else. But if you order through uh, the website, uh, you know, you'll get a signed copy as opposed to Amazon where you'll just get whatever they send you. You're in the process now of, um, I hear, opening a, a new project. Can you talk about that? Oh, I suppose I should. <laughs> well, I, God, the, the museum business has been very, very good to me. You know, 10 years, three museums, what the hell? Um, and I'm still buying crap. I just, I can't, I can't stop. It's, it's a disease. And, um, but anyway, so I've got five storage units in East Baltimore and a big buddy of mine, David London, a magician out of Baltimore. He's a, a real, real genius as a, as a, as a performer. And, um, he, uh, he's been getting jungled up with the people at the Peel Museum. Now, the, it, I, I really shouldn't call it the Peel Museum, except everybody in Baltimore calls it the Peel. Come on. It, 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 it is literally the oldest building in the Western Hemisphere built expressly for the purposes of being a museum exhibition. Uh, the only building in the world older, um, apparently, is the Ashmolean in Oxford, uh, named after um, uh, uh, Isaiah Ashmole, of all things. So he, he comes to me and he goes, look, he says, the Peel's being reconfigured. It, it, it has been through a lot of things in the years. It was built by the Peel family. Charles Wilson Peel built it for his sons, uh, Rembrandt and Rubens, uh, to run. And uh, they realized very quickly, despite the old man's contention that not unlike Thomas Jefferson, should be about the edu education of the great rural blah, blah. And they were like, pop, we're dying down here. We're going to make money. So they're bringing in the educated turkeys and the fireworks exhibitions and your world's fattest man. I mean, they're, they're doing whatever they can to make the money. It's, it's an, an early 19th century museum building. I mean, it was being built during the War of 1812 during the shelling of Fort McHenry. But anyway, the, um, uh, he came to me and he's like, look, he said... Um, you, you, you want to set up an appeal? And I was like, the deal is it has to be at, at least the lip service 
it's long-term, it's going to be here, it's not going anywhere. I said, because I just, I can't be unpacking crap and filling whole museum spaces and then boxing it all back up and store, you know, every six months, I said, that's, that's just a fool's errand, I can't do that. What is your favorite item in your collection? Next thing I get. No, I, <laughs> I, no, I, I, I have a number of attractions which um, I just I drag out of mothballs every chance I get. Most of the, most of the stuff that I've got in my house, which isn't a lot, um, uh, dearly beloved will not tolerate some of the things in the house. Uh, <laughs> I mean, well, some of it's kind of rank. I mean, some of it's kind of raw. There's you know a guy's hand in formaldehyde is kind of like a little. Well, that's just the thing to brighten up one's den. Yeah, I you know well, um, she owns the the Fiji mermaid that that um, uh, it's gorgeous. That Fiji mermaid's gotten so much ink. Oh my god, it was in the the the, the original the the Barnum Fiji mermaid. Oh. Or, or, sure, yeah. Sure. My, 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 mine and the other 50,000 of them that are being pumped out of Rogue Taxidermy and Serena Brewer and all the rest of the amazing people who are making them. One more time, where can people find you? Where can people find the Shocked and Amazed uh, or just learn more about you and your collection? Well, in the coming months, you if you're in Baltimore, you can go to the Peel Museum. We haven't decided on a name for the museum, which will be in the Peel, because technically I, I can't really use the Peel name. Uh, they can certainly visit the museum or online you can go to shockedandamazed.com. And uh, you'll go to the website for the journal, and you'll find uh, summations and everything of all the, the stuff in the journals. And you'll see chapters, you know, yanked out, and you'll see the advertisement for the coming collector's edition. Uh, obviously, you can also order online through Amazon if that is what you are wont to do. Uh, and uh, as well, of course, we're on Facebook, because who isn't? Uh, just, just go to Shocked and Amazed. Uh, the picture will be of Frida Pushnik, uh, the armless, legless wonder, who was uh, cartooned by Robert Ripley uh, twice, one of the few people ever be cartooned twice by him, because he was madly in love with her, who, which is really kind of frightening given how old he was compared to how old she was, uh, above and beyond the no arms, no legs thing. Um, and, uh, but yeah, it, it's the front cover of one of the, of volume eight of Shocked and Amazed is the, uh, the little profile picture. James Taylor, thank you for your generosity and your oh, time. It's fascinating. Absolutely my pleasure. Absolutely. And a suggestion for a name for your, your new museum, uh, you can name it uh, the Box of Oddities after us. Oh, well, there you go. What a great idea. Well, considering the fact that we now have like three dozen names that we've been fighting violently over, <laughs> I just, every time I come up with a name, you know, David London and I are like, really? You know, no, really? You know, so uh, we'll come up with something. But uh, we are hopeful mid-October because I need to be able to get talent in there for a show. Because uh, what it'll be is the opening night will be uh, the opening night for the museum, and it will be the publication party for the collector's edition as well. So what one would do would be pay 20 bucks, which is five bucks cheaper than the price of the book, and you get a copy of the book. I give a little lecture for about a half an hour, and then we have a little show. So you get the museum tour, you get my lecture, you get the show, plus the book for five bucks off cover. That's a deal made in heaven. We'll probably be there for that. I certainly hope so. I expect you. If you're not there, I'm going to call you out from the stage. <laughs> and it's a Prasini March stage in that theater, too, so it'll be really dramatic. <laughs> well, that's what I like, a lot of drama. In fact, how would you feel about maybe at some point uh, we bring the podcast to the museum and, and, and do a show from there? Love it. Would absolutely love it. Absolutely love it. And I will pass the word on to, uh, to David London, who's kind of working with the Peel. 
And uh, that would be where the place would, uh, that would be the place where it'd be performed. So you bet. Thanks, James. You bet. Thanks a lot. The Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. What a great guy, and I really think we should try to um, to get to Baltimore for the grand opening of his uh, brand new Oddities Museum. A hundred percent. Plus, I want to see all the places where they filmed The Wire. <laughs> the Box of Oddities. This week was three times. This was a bonus episode. I know it's different from what we normally do. Uh, we're back to our regular format on Monday. We just thought you guys might enjoy this. James Taylor, an amazing guy. Thank you so much for taking the time to, to give us your amazing oddity business. And thank you so much for hanging out with us. Hope you enjoyed the bonus episode. We'll see you Monday. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. And fly it proudly. And so, let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you, and its fate is in your hands. The box of oddities commits to the telling of stories, stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com Copyright 2018. All rights reserved. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. Do you love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charlwood, your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into... Unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.